Right, this morning's reading is from Romans chapter 3, which is on page 1130 of your Pew Bibles. What advantage then is there in being a Jew, or what value is there in circumcision? Much in every way. First of all, the Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. What if some were unfaithful? Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true, and every human being a liar, as it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? I'm using a human argument. Certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as some slanderously claim that we say, let us do evil that good may result. Their condemnation is just. What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. As it is written, There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves, their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says... It says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he'd left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. Because of what law? The law that requires works? No because of the law that requires faith. 
For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too, since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Sheila, very much indeed for reading that so helpfully for us. And please do keep page 1130 open in front of you if that's possible this morning as we look at these things. Um, let me ask you, though, to start off with, um, I wonder, have you got a favourite film? And if you've got a favourite film, I wonder if you've got a favourite moment in your favourite film. I don't know what you would think of there. Maybe you immediately think of you know, Luke Skywalker in his X-Wing um, coming down on the Death Star. Maybe if you're, if you're of a certain age, you might think of Steve McQueen on his motorbike um, jumping over the fences. Or perhaps you know, it's, um, it's Leonardo and Kate on the front of the Titanic in that moment. Maybe for, maybe for some of us, it's Colin Firth coming up out of the lake. You don't have to admit to that one if that one is you. That's how we often talk about a great story, isn't it? Whether it's a great film or a great book. Uh, those amazing moments, the, the I love that bit when moments that make us smile or maybe make us shriek or even cry. And if you're reading Romans, which we are in our services at the moment, it is an epic book in many ways in the New Testament. Then I want to say chapter 3, verses 21 to 26 is one of those I love that bit moments for Christians. I love that bit where Jesus freely justifies everyone through his faithfulness by grace as he is presented as an atonement for our sin and God proves himself righteous even as he declares that we are righteous in Jesus by faith, whoever we are and wherever we may come from. Um, it's one of the great declarations of the good news of Jesus in the Bible. Uh, one of those places where what God says in his word kind of gets us here, but also gets us here. I mean, it gets us here, doesn't it? Because I don't know about you, but reading Romans 3, you've got to concentrate, haven't you? To even begin to, to, to get your head around all of the complexity and the depth of what Paul is saying in a passage like this one. It's certainly not simplistic. It's rich and it's deep. And at the same time, as we do, just begin to grasp some of the different things it says. Um, doesn't it just want to make us burst out in praise and in thanksgiving for the amazing things that God has done? <clears throat> and I want to say part of its beauty is the sheer contrast uh, that Paul has painted between what has gone before and what is true now. Uh, two weeks ago, I was preaching on Romans chapter 1 and that was pretty hard going, wasn't it? I don't know about you. It was certainly hard to preach on. I imagine it was probably not easy to listen to as well. As Paul plumbed the depths of what is wrong with the human race, our rebellion against God and all the things we get wrong. But now it's against that background, the background of all that he said in chapters 1 and 2, that we're able to see more clearly how amazing is the gospel, the good news of Jesus. Um, you may remember that a couple of weeks ago um, I used the image of a diamond. It's all about diamonds this morning. Didn't know we were going to have so many in our service. Not a bad thing. Uh, a diamond presented by a jeweler against a black velvet background. 
so that the sheer quality of the diamond stands out and you can see how it sparkles in the light. And this is where we get to see this morning some of the different facets of the gospel, of what God has done. Uh, remember, by way of introduction, those key verses from chapter 1. You might like to just to flick back over one page to verses 16 and 17 of chapter 1, where Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first the Jew, then the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. That is, by faith from first to last. Well, here in Romans chapter 3, we get to see how that plays out. Uh, first of all, it shows us why we need the gospel and helps us to answer that question. Secondly, it helps us to think about, well, what is this gospel, this good news that Paul is talking about? And then how Jesus' death is able to demonstrate God's righteousness to us so we can then start to think about what it means for you and me. So first of all, verses 1 to 20, why do we need the gospel? Because in the first half of Romans 3, a bit more than the first half of the chapter in fact, what Paul is doing is drawing together many of the strands from the previous two chapters, and we've kind of looked at some of those in detail, so I'm not going to go back into all the details of this part again. Essentially, the reason we all need the good news of Jesus is because the natural human condition is to rebel against God. And that rebellion places us all um, under the wrath of God. And as we stand at that point of alienation from him, our natural tendency is just to rebel more and more and to go our own way rather than going his ways. And if you've read the first couple of chapters, you'll know that, that we get a description of that kind of downward spiral as we leave God behind and do our own thing, and it just goes from bad to worse. We saw in chapter 1 some of the ways that that can work out in practice. Uh, we saw in chapter 2 that it applies just as much to the people who are kind of upright and good and religious as it does uh, to those who are obviously rebellious. You know, if you were here last week, you may remember Tom asking us, are you a Gemma or an Eden? You weren't here last week, that will make no sense. Uh, but essentially he was asking, you know, are, are you like the, the younger son in Jesus' parable of the prodigal? the one who, who goes away and does his own thing and you know, rejects his father? Or are you more like the, the older son who looks kind of you know, like he's behaving himself, but in fact he's just as negative towards his father as the younger one? The point being that none of us actually get even close to living according to the moral standards of God crea God's creation. And so in this... Is my microphone cutting out? Is it, is it right? I'll keep going. If you want to change it, yeah, well, I'll give it one more try. I'll change to Steve's if it gets stuck again. Um, in this first part of chapter 3, um, Paul brings this line of thinking um, to its logical conclusion, if you like. If there's no difference between uh, Roman Gentiles and Jewish people in how they stand before God, then what's the point in even trying to be religious? So verse 1, look, he, he, he asks that question. What advantage is there in being a Jew? And he gives a twofold answer. First of all, he says, much in every way, verse 2. Because Jews like Paul have been entrusted with the very words of God, the words which show clearly who he is and what is right and wrong. But also, down in verse 9, no advantage at all. Because it's just that no one has actually managed to live by God's laws, and so everyone, religious or not, ends up in the same position. 
And so then Paul concludes, and there's that whole um, host of quotations from the Old Testament that you might have noticed as we went through, starting with this. So there is no one righteous, not even one. And he concludes in verse 20, Therefore no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law we become conscious of our sin. But now, beginning of verse 21, this is one of the great turning points in the Bible. This is the moment when it all changes. If Romans was a film, then we'd have to acknowledge that Act 1 has been quite difficult to watch. It's been quite painful. The situation is bleak. Some people are rebellious. Some people are religious. But all of them, all of us, uh, find ourselves unrighteous before God and not able to stand in his presence. But now, and in the six verses that follow, we get one of the great explanations of what exactly is it that Jesus has done? What is it that God has done through his Son? And these are amazing verses. They're densely packed verses. Their brilliance shines. But it's also uh, it's just got so much going on in it, so many different facets of the diamond that we have to really think. But for sinners who are, who are alienated from God, these are verses which change everything. They are why we worship Jesus and why we give thanks to God for his faithfulness. So let's have a look. Uh, what is the gospel? Verses 21 to 24. Uh, just read those verses again. Paul says, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. These are verses which speak to us about God's righteousness and about our status. Um, God's righteousness, first of all. This is one of, there are several kind of Bible jargon words, aren't there, in Romans 3? I don't know if you spotted it as we, as we read through. They're the kind of words we quite often use in church, but we don't really use in everyday life very much. Uh, one of them is righteousness, and especially the righteousness of God. What does that mean? Well, back in our, our theme verses from chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, remember the gospel is not only the power of God for salvation, it's the righteousness of God revealed. And when Paul speaks of God's righteousness, there are kind of two elements to that. The first one is kind of the obvious one. He means that God always does what is right, what is good, what is just. There's a kind of moral quality to it. He is perfect. But there's a second thing as well. Uh, when Paul says that God is righteous, he also means God is always faithful to what he has promised. All those things that he said, all the commitments that he has made, he fulfills them. He never fails or lets his people down. That is God's righteousness too. So when Paul says that God's righteousness has been made known in Jesus, he means not only what Jesus has done is good, but also that it is faithful. Uh, that's why he emphasizes so much that it's the righteousness to which the Old Testament law and prophets testify. In other words, God has now done in Jesus what he always promised he would do. You know, promised in Genesis and Exodus and through the prophets like Isaiah and Daniel and all the others. And what does this righteousness of God look like? Well, verse 22 tells us it's given through faith 
and it's given to all who believe. Uh, We're told it's through faith in Jesus Christ, or possibly that could be translated through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Well, both of those things are true. And it comes to all of us who believe in him. And so then we get this kind of summary in verses 23 and 24. Um, This is where all the pain of chapters 1 and 2 have been pointing us, that we have a huge problem, but now it's been dealt with by Jesus. So verse 23 All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Jews and Gentiles, rebels and religious people, uh, people who know they're sinners, people who think they're not sinners, uh, Gemma's and Ethan's, and you and me, all have sinned. But verse 24, all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came through Christ Jesus. And that is good news That is really good news. Whoever we are means whatever our history, whatever our struggles, yes, we've fallen short of God's glory, and many of us know that only too well deep down. But yes, now God's righteousness has been revealed, and all who believe are freely justified through Jesus' redemption. Now, again, there are some Bible jargon words in here, aren't there? Um, Justified is one of them. Uh, And it means to be declared to be righteous, to be declared to be in the right. Uh, Most of us will be familiar with um, the idea of a law court. Hopefully not too many of us have been up before a judge in the past. Um, But we know what happens, don't we? Where there's a dispute in court, only one of the parties can be declared to be in the right, uh, vindicated at the end of the case. Will it be Johnny Depp or will it be Amber Heard? Will it be Rebecca Vardy or will it be Colleen Rooney? the end of the trial, one of them is, is vindicated, and they are essentially declared righteous by the judge. Well, Paul says, all of those, whether you're Gentile or Jewish, who have faith in Jesus, the faithful one, are declared to be in the right. They are justified by God, not for what they've done, but because of what Jesus has done for them and for us. Um, You might have noticed that certain words just recur again and again through this whole passage, just and justified and righteous and righteousness. And actually, they all come from the same root in the language that Paul was writing in. Um, So justice is about righteousness, and being just is about being righteous. So what has God done in Jesus now? Well, effectively, he has announced his verdict And he has announced it for all those who have faith in him. We know, don't we, that the Bible points ahead to a time in history when all of us will stand before God to face his judgment, to give account of our lives. Paul says, good news. The verdict's been announced already. You don't have to go to that meeting wondering what God is going to say because he's given the answer. He has announced that you are justified and you are righteous through the faithfulness of Jesus for all who believe in him. How does that make you feel? Praise the Lord. That is the truth at the heart of the Christian faith. And that is why as Christians we can have complete assurance of salvation. We don't have to wonder, not because we've proved ourselves, not because we've never done anything wrong, not because we won't ever do anything wrong, but because Jesus has done it. And that other jargon word in there uh, is redemption, which literally means bought back. It's the idea of someone being released from slavery because the price has been paid to set them free. That's what Jesus has done on our behalf. 
according to Paul here in Romans chapter 3. That is the good news of Jesus. And so the other question that we, that we need to ask then is, well, how does, this, how does this work? How does Jesus' death demonstrate God's righteousness and set us free? And we're now in verses 25 and 26, and these are tricky verses to get our heads around, aren't they? So let me just read them one more time. We're told, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. It bends our minds a little bit, this stuff, doesn't it? Even when we're we're really kind of focusing and thinking about it. Um, There are various strands here. It involves, we're told, first of all, it involves Jesus being presented as a sacrifice of atonement. Now, I'm really not joking when I say that those three little words, that phrase, deserve a whole sermon uh, all to themselves. And we can talk about that over coffee a little bit later on if you want to. But in what is actually one word in Greek, which is translated here as sacrifice of atonement, Paul is showing that Jesus is he's the ultimate sacrifice for sin. All of those sacrifices spoken about in the Old Testament, they were really just pointing to him. He is the sacrifice that deals with our sin. Not only the sacrifice, in some sense, he's also the place where our sin is dealt with and therefore the one that we go to. Uh, Paul is saying that, that what Jesus did on the cross is kind of like that whole Old Testament day of atonement, but now completed and done once and for all so it never has to be repeated and on a grand scale, a cosmic scale. Jesus is the sacrifice which deals with our sin and which turns away the wrath of God, which we read about so painfully in chapter 1. He's turned it aside. He's deflected it. Um, Then there's that whole sense that what Jesus has done here somehow demonstrates God's righteousness, his faithfulness. Uh, It says, in leaving sins committed before, unpunished. Again, we haven't got time to get into all of this in detail, but it's that Jesus' death is somehow so central to the whole of history that his sacrifice on the cross doesn't only deal with the problem of sin for people like you and me who look back on what Jesus has done uh, and believe in him, but also for all of God's people, all of those Old Testament believers who came before him. How is Moses saved? How is Isaiah justified? Or Daniel or Esther or Ruth? Uh, at the cross of Jesus and through the sacrifice which he made. And in the midst of it all, if you want a kind of summary, in these uh, few remarkable verses, there are basically three trains of thought going on here. What is Paul saying? First of all, he is saying that Jesus is the faithful one. He is the one who proves God's righteousness uh, because he is the center point of all the promises that God has made. This is where the faithfulness is seen to have been lived out, despite all the failures of people to listen to him. Um, Secondly, that Jesus' faithfulness is faithfulness unto death. And particularly, it's a sacrificial death. It's the death on behalf of someone else, in fact, of lots of other people. Uh, A death which evokes that day of atonement, the self-giving sacrifice foreshadowed by Isaiah. We were reading Isaiah 52 and 53 just before Easter, weren't we? That is in the background to what Paul is saying here. And thirdly, Jesus' death, as I said a moment ago, is what turns away God's wrath 
which we were warned is otherwise, hanging over all people. This is how God's righteousness is revealed in what Jesus has done, his death and resurrection. God has been true to his promises. All the things he promised, he's done. He's dealt properly with sin. No one can say that wasn't fair. And he's come to the rescue of the helpless and shown complete impartiality between Jew and Gentile. So, last of all, very briefly, what do we do with all of this? Well, we're going to pick that up over the weeks to come as Paul unpacks the implications of these great truths. Much of what is said in the next few chapters of Romans will look back to chapter 3 here. But here are four things. What does this mean for us? First of all, and if you look at uh, verse 27 there, there is no place for boasting. In the church, there can be no looking down on other people, no one feeling superior in any way. None of us have justified ourselves. We are all justified by Jesus. And he announces that we are righteous, that you are righteous by faith in him. We're all in exactly the same place. Secondly, it's true for everyone. He is the God of the Jews and the Gentiles, verse 30. That is what he promised, and that is the fulfillment of the law. Um, Thirdly, we're not only made right with God through what Jesus has done, we're brought into God's family, the new multi-ethnic, from all nations, family of God. And we're going to see some of that in chapter 4. Uh, in a couple of weeks' time, when we get to it, unpack some more. And fourthly, this affects how we live. Um, We've now been set free by Christ to live a new kind of life with God and with his people. And in fact, what we'll see through chapter 5, and in fact going through several chapters of Romans, will help us unpack what it looks like to live the life of someone who's been set free by Jesus. But today... It would be wrong to do anything in this passage other than just focus on him with praise and thanksgiving because all of this is because of Jesus. God's sacrifice of atonement. All of it is because of his faithfulness which guarantees your righteousness. And so can we not say with Paul, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God and it is the righteousness of God revealed. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for sending your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that in him your righteousness has been revealed. We thank you for his faithfulness, that it is faithfulness unto death, and that because of his death we are free. We are set free. We are counted as righteous in your sight. We have an assurance that cannot be taken away. We are called to be your people. We have brothers and sisters here at St. Luke's, down through the ages and around the world. And Lord, would you set our hearts on fire once again by what you have done for us. Teach us to praise you. Help us to live for you. And Lord, for those of us who feel uh, discouraged and downtrodden, Uh, in the faith, or for whatever reason that might be, would you renew our sense that you are the God who loves us so much that you would even do this for us. Our Father God, we thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.